Would you like to turn to Mark chapter 1? A, a, a preacher in a church used to get a bit frustrated that people, unlike here, always sat right at the back and never sat towards the front of the church. Um, and he was obviously always complaining about this to his leadership. And um, on one occasion, one of the leaders came to him and said, Look, I can solve your problem if you'd like. And uh, the preacher said, well, what would you like to do? He said, well, you're going on a holiday for a few weeks. When you come back, the problem will be solved. So when the preacher came back from his holidays, he arrived to an empty church. There was one row of chairs right at the back and the pulpit right at the front. And he was a bit perplexed, but the leader said, stick with it, it'll be okay. And as people came in, they sat in this back row of chairs. And as it filled up, it shot to the front. And another row of chairs popped up at the back. And as people came in, they filled those up and it came behind the front one. And eventually the church was filled from the front back. Wonderful, he said, wonderful. And then began his sermon, which rather, having been on holiday, went on and on and on. And as the usual hour for stopping came up, the leader pressed a button in his chair and the pulpit disappeared out of view. Wonderful, said the congregation, wonderful. I don't think there's any buttons on any of your chairs. <laughs> Mark 1. Um, many folk, I suspect, um, pledged to do new things at the new year. I a long time ago, I tried to read through the Bible each year, and the system I use introduces me to new starts. It starts in sort of four different places in the, in the Bible, and I read through the Bible in that way. And one of these starting points of the new year is the Gospels. Of course, it's Matthew, not Mark. But in fact, Mark was the first Gospel to be written. Interesting that it should be the second one, that it's in our book, but it's the first one to be written. No one had written a Gospel before this. Well, maybe some had, but anyway, there were lots around, but this was the one that is the first one of the four that we have, which is rather interesting, because we don't really know why it was written or to whom it was written, but it was written. And when you see it like that, it opens with a rather grand fanfare. Matthew and Luke clearly read Mark's gospel, enjoyed it, but both independently decided they would add to it. So they're both significantly longer. And as we've been enjoying over the Christmas period, they both put a couple of chapters before, as it were, Mark's first chapter, telling us something about what happened before this little bit. But Mark, when he decides to write it, the first of the accounts wants to leap right into the Gospel. So let me read just the first few verses of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1, and this is how he writes it. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him in, out into the desert, and he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, good news is a phrase from where we get the word gospel. Gospel equals good news. Whether it actually had that meaning at the time that Luke was using it right here is not sure. But very soon, Christians understood that the news about God was good news indeed. And he tells us about the, the story of the good news of God. And he begins with John the Baptist and tells us that it's about Jesus Christ the Son of God. So as we begin a new year, it's probably useful to have that little cameo point right at the beginning. For Mark, when he wants to write his gospel, the very first thing he says, Matthew and Luke give us extended introductions to this bit. This will happen in chap their chapters 3. But it happens right away. He says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the Son of God. It's all about him. Oh, there's lots of things we have to learn, lots of things we have to get hold of, lots of things to do, but actually if we lose sight of this fact, we lose sight of everything. It's not the Gospel of Mark, it's not the Gospel of John the Baptist, it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he introduces his theme, links it to the Old Testament, and brings it forward to John the Baptist. Interestingly, he quotes Isaiah. Well, not quite, if you have an NIV, you'll notice that one of those little quotations comes from Malachi. So he quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah in that order. Yet he says, as in the prophet Isaiah, or as is written in the prophet Isaiah, well, Isaiah was the first of the writing prophets, and Malachi was the last. And Isaiah's book beats Malachi's book into a cocked hat. It is loads of times, 12 or 13 times as long. So I guess he's simply using the major prophet to bring his thoughts together. So he quotes the Old Testament and brings people from the Old Testament straight forward to John the Baptist and from John the Baptist to Jesus Christ. Because he knows that for the people who are going to be listening to him, they know something about Jewish history, which is that a day long awaited has dawned. What he wants to tell us is that what has happened in his day is entirely in keeping with everything the Old Testament was about. It's not as if God said, oh, enough of the Old Testament, close that book, put it on the shelf, file it away under interesting but not very relevant, and let's get on with the right story. What we call our Old Testament and our New Testament are really parts one and part two of the same book. And Mark is keen to tell us that. Everything that the Old Testament tells us 
runs up in here, as Isaiah says. And he could have quoted lots of other people too. And says this is all about what the Old Testament was teaching us. The Jewish people longed for the day of the Lord. You'll have it mentioned in Isaiah and Malachi, among other places, this great and dreadful day that Malachi says. This day when the present age in which they lived will come to a finish and the age to come would start. This age of God's kingdom. So the present age in which they lived with all its ups and downs and injustices and so forth will come to an end. History as we know it would finish and the day of the Lord would usher in this new and wonderful time when everything would be as it ought to be. It would be a day of putting right all the wrongs and of sorting out all the godless. Expectations ran high even if people couldn't quite agree on the details. Speaking of that coming day and of the coming one, Malachi had said, and I, Mark quotes him here, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And he goes on to say that God will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And then Malachi uses the words that an angel will quote 400 years later to Zechariah and say about John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So we know that this voice of one calling in the desert isn't some disembodied voice, but the voice of a man, the messenger whom God will come before he came on the coming dreadful day so God was going to come before that he was going to send a messenger and Mark says that messenger has come so John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to usher in this new age this coming age the kingdom of God was near the rule of God was upon them but it would not be as they had anticipated. It would catch them out. They expected that their present age would come to an end with the onset of the age to come, but it didn't happen that way. With hindsight, we know that something dramatic happened when Jesus came. You only have to look at his ministry, listen to his words. People said, wow, he te teaches like nobody we taught ever heard before. Look at the things he does. He can even walk on water. He can feed people with a few loaves. He can raise the dead. These are the signs of the age to come. When John the Baptist doubts at a particular moment in the future when he's in prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one to come or should we be waiting for another one? And Jesus goes to his disciples and says, tell him what you've seen. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the dead are raised. Go back and tell John what you see. These are the signs of the coming age. The kingdom of God has come, but not in all its fullness. We'll come back to that. This age, this age is Satan's time as well as God's time. How can doubt that it's characterised by what? Sin, sickness, demon possession, the triumph of evil people. Isn't that true? It's still happening now, isn't it? Isn't that one of the questions Christians have? 
How come bad things happen to good people? It's a question they had in Jesus' day. We have it today. This age to come would be an age when people would would, uh, experience righteousness. This coming age of God would be an age of righteousness. But with righteousness he would judge the earth and give decisions for the poor and bring justice. People would live in peace, we're told. Isaiah again, nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Oh, really? Well, they do, don't they? Following the, uh, the war to end all wars at the beginning of the last century, the world has been without any period of peace whatsoever. There has not been any peace since that time, has there? Even now, you could probably quote to me a number of wars going on at this very moment. This will be a time of peace. It will be a time of the fullness of the Spirit. It will be a time of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. Sin and sickness will be done away with. Oh, yes. The ultimate, of course, is death. Which still lingers, doesn't it? So Jesus came... The kingdom of God is here, but not as they had inspected it. So when John the Baptist comes, calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming, you can see how expectation is really reaching fever pitch. You can see what they want. They want this glorious, wonderful day of the Lord to come. So he comes... Preparing people, and he comes baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> John put an end to any thinking that the Jews were in any privileged place as far as that's concerned because he came to the Jews and said, You need to repent in order to be ready for this coming one. Something was about to happen, or rather, someone <coughs> was coming. And everyone needed to prepare themselves for this coming one in repentance. And perhaps his description of wearing clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist is meant to link us in our thinking to Elijah. That's how Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1. And maybe that's meant to connect us together. As he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, this John the Baptist has his predecessor had doesn't point to himself he points away from himself to the coming one and as Elijah on the mountain pointed to God so John the Baptist points to one who will come and says you need to be ready for this coming one he will be a new Adam succeeding where the first Adam had failed the covenant God had made with Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nations would be fulfilled in Jesus The promises God had made to David that there would always be someone to sit on his throne will be fulfilled in Jesus. He will be the more powerful one. John says, I'm not the one to come. And in a conversation he has in John chapter 1 when people say, who are you then? Are you the prophet? He says, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I am not. Then who are you? I'm a voice, he says, calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. And in verse 9, the Lord appears. So quickly does Mark get to the nub of his gospel. 
My friends, the Old Testament is a very important book. But in our thinking, we must always hold Jesus right at the forefront of everything. Later on, he will say when he speaks with a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus, he will say, don't you understand all the scriptures testify about me? They're all about me. So in verse 9, we see Jesus coming from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptised by John in the Jordan. And here we have one of those lovely little incidents where we have the Trinity turning up together. The Trinity as a word does not appear in the Bible, but the Trinity as a a reality does. And here you have one of these wonderful moments when they all turn up together. Jesus comes to be baptised by John. Now we don't have the discussion that John has with Jesus as Matthew records it. Mark just simply tells us that he's baptised. And just wants us to know that Jesus turns up and offers himself, dedicates himself to his Father's work. Of course, he's got no sins of which, for which he needs to repent. He is a <coughs> sinless man. So the baptism for repentance is not for him. But he has come to represent mankind and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he stands in the queue of people wanting to be ready for the coming one. And he is the coming one. But he stands in the line to identify with you and me right at the beginning. So if you thought his birth was pretty low point, well, isn't this a lower point still? He's not only prepared to come and live among us, but to identify with those who bear God's wrath. Peter will say this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And in baptism he reaffirms what he's come to do. To do something profound for us. His whole life is dedicated to the purposes of God. And so even as he is baptised in the water and standing there identifying with sinners, the voice from heaven speaks. It'll only speak three times, and this is one of them. This, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased, records Mark. Matthew tells us that the father said, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased, telling the crowds. But as far as Mark's concerned, the father is identifying with the son. The son has offered himself in total dedication to the purposes of the Trinity that they thought of before the foundation of the world. And the Father says, this is good. This is good. This is exactly what I want. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so the plan of the ages of salvation is coming to its climax. But what motivates God to act in salvation? Why would God even think about saving people like you and me. Often the answers to those questions, writes one theologian, are answers not from God's perspective, but from our perspective. We speak about human need or divine emotion. So most answers to the question, what motivates God to save, will answer like this. Human need includes the fact that we are lost and need to be found. We are enslaved and need to be freed. 
We are condemned and need to be pardoned. We are alienated and need to be reconciled. We're in darkness and need light and so on. Divine emotion would include the wonderful biblical affirmations that God loves us. God pities us. God has compassion and mercy on us. Grieves over our willful waywardness. Longs for our return. Let me continue this theologian's quote for us. All these truths about human need and divine emotion are thoroughly biblical. But for, and this quote is in the context of a commentary on Ezekiel, so he says, but for Ezekiel, almost the sole issue and certainly the overwhelming motivation was what salvation would mean for God himself. What ultimately mattered was that God's name and reputation should be vindicated and that God should be universally acknowledged as God. So in the end, God did not save us because he pities us. He didn't save us because we need to be saved. He saved us for the glory of his name. That his name, which has been besmirched and dragged through the mud through the centuries, might once again be elevated and glorified. God is who he says he is. And the coming of Jesus, therefore, will show the world their great need. Well, it will do that. But it will show the world more the love God has for the world. Isn't that true? Jesus comes and the attention is not merely on a man but upon God. This is how much God loves the world. That he would send his son. The Son will demonstrate what it is to be a true human being made in the image of God. You want to know what a human being made in the image of God looks like? Jesus is that one. That's what we're meant to look like. Bearing the image of God. So that in us people might see something of God. And give glory to our Father in heaven. He will usher in the kingdom and show us what life would be like if only... We surrendered to God wholeheartedly. Socrates, one of his arguments was often, think of ethics in this way. What would life be like if everyone was like you? What would life be like if everyone did what you did? To be honest, if we looked at our world and saw it that way, it would be catastrophic, wouldn't it? If everyone did what everyone else did, it would be automatic. Whenever I get you know, nipped by a car coming the other way who's a bit over my side of the road, I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't meet himself coming the other way. But when you look at the life of Jesus and say, supposing everyone were like that, wouldn't you like to live in a world like that? Wouldn't you? He shows us what the kingdom of God is like. And as the Father speaks, so the Spirit comes down, and I love... Jenny's picture that she told me a few years ago of this particular incident when she said, you know when you think about the dove coming down, you think of a dove that big, don't you? Little wings. But it doesn't say that. It says like a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove. So wouldn't it be incredible to think of a dove the size of an albatross? No. The size of ten albatrosses? No. The size of a massive bird. You know it's a dove because it's the right shape, but it's massive. I rather like that. Not this little tiny bird that you could probably put in your pocket, but this great big bird comes down. 
the Spirit comes down because what Jesus will need to do in his work will be the power of God to do it. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus didn't do what he did because he was God. He did it because he was filled with the Spirit of God. And on this occasion he's baptised in water and he's baptised in the Holy Spirit and now in the power of that Spirit will go out and do the work of God. Mark is probably writing down what Peter has told him. That's the usual understanding of how it works. And you'll remember that Peter went to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 to tell him the gospel and gives the gospel in a succinct form in Acts chapter 10. And he goes and says to Cornelius, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. The, father, the son offers himself to the work of the Trinity for saving men. The father says, yes, this is it. And the spirit comes down upon the son to enable him to do the work. And immediately Jesus is required directly to engage the devil in the desert. We're not given any details that Matthew and Luke choose to give us. It's just a very brief one. We're told that he goes into the desert. Perhaps it is a place of traditional prophetic understanding, but perhaps it also means that's what the world looks like because of the mess mankind has made of it. There shouldn't have been any deserts in the world originally. It was good. But there are deserts in Jesus' day. The wild animals are with him. Well, in the original, there weren't any wild animals. They became wild because of the sin of mankind. The lion, we're told, will lie down with the lamb. And you hope the little lamb's eyes aren't popping out of his face. Because they won't be wild anymore. Wildness is a sign of the wickedness of the world. And he's tempted by Satan, who only has authority to do so because of the sinfulness of Adam and Eve, without which he would not have had any Authority. So briefly, let me just pick up three of those points in for us. The kingdom of heaven, the judgment of God, and receiving the spirit. The kingdom of God means we live in a tension. We live in a tension. We must be careful not to fall into the same trap the Jews did. They expected that this age would finish and the age to come will come in all its fullness. Well, it came but not in all its fullness. And we need to hold fast to that. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. Since Jesus came the first time, the present age in which we live is passing away, but will not finally end until he comes again. But during this present age, the powers of the age to come have broken in but not in all their fullness. So, you pray for people and God miraculously heals them. Wonderful! The powers of the age to come have broken in, but does it happen every time? No. Isn't that true? Because we are not yet in the kingdom in all its fullness. So since we live in the midst of the ages, between the beginning of the end and the end of the end with life going on much as it was before, 
The kingdom of God is present and has its effect as yeast does in dough. So already we know we have God's full and free forgiveness, but we have not yet been made perfect. Put your hand up if you're perfect. Well, thank you very much. I once, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm, I thought I made a mistake once, but I was wrong. No, 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 no. No, we won't do that, things like that. We're not perfect. We know that. And yet we know we're better than we once were. We know the potential for perfection is there, but we know it's not fully there in a way that it one day will be when we see Jesus face to face in the age to come. We live in this in-between time. Already we have victory over death. God is still raising people from the dead. Yet every one of us will die. But not in the age to come. Already we live in the spirit, but we don't live in the fullness of the spirit because we're still in a place where Satan can attack Ephesians 6. Already we've been justified and faced no condemnation, yet there is still a future judgment. The point about it is we've seen the future. We've seen Jesus. We've seen what the kingdom of God looks like. And we say, if that's what it looks like then, we're going to live as if it lived like that now. Isn't that right? That's what we do. We live in the kingdom as if it were fully here now. So we enjoy righteousness because of the cross, but not completed righteousness because the second covenant hasn't happened. We enjoy peace with God because of the cross, but not yet full peace because the second coming hasn't happened yet. We enjoy a measure of health and the miraculous because of the cross, but we don't enjoy an absence of sickness, sorrow, pain or death, because that will be when Jesus comes again. So we live in this tension. So if you're expecting God to deal with everything and sweep away all sin and all sorrow and all sickness and disease now, think again. You will be disappointed. You're setting yourself up for a disappointment. Oh yes, we should believe that God will involve himself in our work. We should believe the Spirit can do anything. We should believe that Jesus will do anything we ask in his name. He invites us to do that. But it will not mean that the kingdom of God, kingdom of God comes in all its fullness now. If we do, we set ourselves up for disappointment. So we mustn't be those who lean back and say, well, nothing changes here. No, the kingdom of God has come. But yet we still live in the world. And we need to be realists about that. So far as the judgment of God is concerned, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. Repent, be ready. Well, we know we are, are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved, says Paul to the Ephesians. It is by grace you have been saved. That is the ground on which we stand. No one can take that away from you. It is a place of legal righteousness. You are in right relationship with God if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you put your hope and trust in him. You have been saved. That is the foundational stone on which you stand. Nothing can change that. But you are being saved. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For those people who say, well, all done, I can do anything I like now, haven't got the message. They've only got a third of the message. The second part is, they are being saved. This is what it talks about, sanctification. God changing us day by day. We are in a new relationship with God, and that means we want to change day by day. 
becoming more like Jesus. That's the persevering part of the Christian life. And then Jesus will say, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. One day it will all be as you hope it would be. One day it will finish. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That's our hope for the future of glorification. So we don't fear the judgment of God. We do everything in our power to live the life that God has given us. As Jesus did. And then if Jesus received the Spirit in order to live this life to the full, so also we need to receive the Spirit. Apart from Jesus we can do, he says, nothing. So we will want to be as full of the Spirit as it's possible for us to be in this life. So we can do the works of Jesus in the same power that he had. Living in this tension, the kingdom of God is here, but not yet in its fullness. We have been saved, and we want to be saved right to the uttermost. So as we begin a new year, that's our determination. Is it? Lord, thank you for all you've done in my life, and I want to live this coming year in the fullness of your spirit. Doing the works of Jesus. Paul will say to the Corinthians, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which is your life-giving, long-lasting, true word. We thank you for Mark's gospel. We thank you for how he speaks to us of your son. And the good news, Lord, we know is all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. And as we look into this coming year, we have things planned, Lord, and things organised, but much of it is still an unknown to us. We ask, Father, that our eyes might be fixed upon Jesus, that we may enjoy living in the kingdom that he ushered in, living each day as if we lived in the fullness of that kingdom, growing ever more like him in the power of your spirit, and then living and working to the praise of your glorious name, doing all that you call upon us to do because we can do anything through Christ who gives us strength. So we look confidently into this future, Lord, with expectation and joy and say, in our lives, Lord, and in this church, Lord, be glorified. Amen.